Right, I know I'm going to show my age, and it is uh, getting up there, when I start this way by saying that one of my favorite expressions is this idiom, being on the same page. I say it's going to show my age because I'm not even sure kids nowadays use this expression anymore, partly because it's based on the fact that uh, we used to use books for everything in the old days, now everything's on video screen, so maybe they've upgraded it. I'm not sure we're on the same screen. It just doesn't quite have the same ring to it. I like it because it very clearly and quickly defines whether or not people are in agreement. Um, and you know what happens when people aren't in agreement. At very least, it's confusing. What are you talking about? I'm talking about this. Sometimes it's actually very frustrating because you just can't get the person to see things from your perspective. Or you might explain something and they're thinking something completely different. You're just not on the same page. To show you how excruciatingly painful this is, let me share with you a conversation with two people who are not on the same page at all. Amy, it says you are trained in technology. That's very good. Are you adept at Excel? No. PowerPoint? No. Publisher? Not really. Exactly in what area of technology mm -hmm. are you proficient? <laughs> Snapchat, Pinterest, Instagram, Vine, Twitter, you know, the big ones. I'm surprised you didn't say Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> That's for old people, like my parents. <laughs> That's funny. Well, Amy, when you're working for me, you have to have those kind of research skills because I'll send you things for you to comb through and get the answers and send them to me. So for that, you've got to be really good at technology. For stuff like that, no problem. I'll just ask Siri. You'll just ask Siri? You know, Siri, tell me this. Siri, find me that. We're all good getting you the answers. Tell Siri I want you ready to go at 8 sharp each and every morning. I don't understand. What don't you understand? What you just said. You don't understand, be ready to go? No. You said eight, right? Yes. Eight like in the morning, eight? Yes, in the morning. Yeah. That kind of doesn't work for me. Who gets up at eight? I do. I Skype with my French boyfriend in Paris until like three in the morning. I don't even get to Starbucks until like 10 where I order my grande chai tea latte, three pumps, skim milk, light water, 2% foam, extra hot, but not too hot. So if it's okay, I work best in the morning at 10.45. <laughs> wow. Amy, I don't think we're gonna be a good fit. Not on the same page. Whatsoever. You know, I have this with my own kids. And uh, my oldest son, we're, we're just a generation apart, a uh, couple decades. I'll start talking about stuff, and it seems like we're from two different planets. I can only imagine. I thank God I'm not in the real world doing hiring and firing and all that, especially dealing with this newest generation, that their lives are completely different than ours. Now, you know, it's not the end of the world that Amy doesn't get the job, uh, obviously, because it's just not going to be a match. <laughs> they're just not... <laughs> They're just not rowing in the same boat here whatsoever. But sometimes things can get pretty serious when you're not on the same page about much more, well, let's just say important issues. One we're living in right now, um, especially now as there seems to be a resurgence of the virus. 
there's a lot of people not on the same page about it. I'm not just talking about the leadership of our country. I'm also talking even about medical science. And no doubt you've heard the spectrums and the variety of ideas. There's one group that says complete lockdown at least for six weeks. Okay, maybe it'll work, maybe not. And then there's another group that says no lockdown whatsoever. Uh, evidence shows it doesn't do a bit of good. So you have this entire range of varied opinions and, if you will, interpretation of the data to support what people are thinking. And you recognize that because a lot of people aren't on the same page about this, it's probably going to cost some people their lives. And that's serious enough, but what if I told you that isn't the most serious thing when it comes to being on the same page? And you might think, well, what's more serious than life and death? How about eternal life and eternal death? That is the top of the pile when it comes to matters on which it is not only beneficial but vital that we be on the same page. Page. And I'm not just talking about the view of the end of the world, but the reality that there actually will be an end to this life. And that there will be one specific set day in which the Lord keeps his promise to return and judge everybody. What if you're not on the same page about that? What if you don't have a clue how that's going to happen? There happened to be a group of people in ancient times in the first century, the Thessalonians, who weren't on the same page about this. And so we have the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul in this series of lessons in his first letter specifically, where Paul answers their nagging question about the end of the world, Judgment Day. How is this going to happen? And by God's grace, we benefit from this answer too. Paul wrote to them, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command with the voice of the archangel and with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. So that's the Lord's answer to this nagging question. Well, how do we get there? I recognize that last week we already had the preceding lesson to this from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, the first one. So I won't rehash all of the context, but for the sake of our study, I think it would be good at least to have a brief review of some of the basic facts to help us understand how this text fits into our study. I hope uh, that you understood, as Pastor A shared the background material, that the church in Thessalonica was established during Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, he and Silas had been doing work in the area of Asia Minor, and the Lord made it clear that he wanted to take those efforts and now go into the Macedonian region. And you can see the string of cities up in Macedonia where Paul and Silas were blessed to do their work. Whenever they'd come to a new town, typically they would follow a pattern, especially developed by the Apostle Paul. He would go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day on Saturday, and he would talk to people with a Jewish background, with a heritage of the Old Testament, and he'd start to explain to them that Jesus Christ is actually the fulfillment of all of God's promises, the Messiah promise. And he would teach them how Jesus had come to pay for our sins. And many of the things that they had been taught about their faith just weren't right or accurate. That it isn't what man does for God, it's ultimately what God does for man. A beautiful message that certainly had an effect 
on the hearts of the people. In a very short period of time, the Christian church was established in this town. There was another pattern that typically would happen too as Paul and Silas did their mission work. As soon as Christians would gather around this truth of God's word, the non-Christian Jews would get jealous. They didn't like the competition, and amongst maybe their friends who were Gentile, there was this whole idea that, you know, if Caesar isn't the greatest guy, they're talking about this Jesus guy, and that would also create some distrust and disunity amongst them. So, in Thessalonica especially, Paul and Silas were only able to be there for a short time, about three weeks. You can read this about, about this in the book of Acts, chapter 17, and the entire work in Thessalonica is in, recorded in ten verses. And I've given you just a few, but it's this last one, verse 10, that tells us that basically Paul and Silas had to leave under the cover of darkness because things were getting pretty tough. So imagine if you were a Christian, a a young and immature Christian in Thessalonica, you had a teacher around for only three weeks. You'd be left with a ton of questions about your new faith. And the one that seemed to be on the minds of the Thessalonians most of all was, what about the end of the world? And there was something that actually prompted this question amongst them. Uh, it had to do with the reality that many of the Christians there in that congregation were starting to die. Uh, some believe it's probably because of the Jewish persecution against the Christians. It, it makes sense. But here's the thing. They had this misconception, or, or they misinterpreted something Paul said, that they thought Jesus was going to return in a matter of days, weeks at most. And so when that didn't happen, and you know it's just been more than that, years and millennia, they were a little bit concerned about what happens with our Christian friends who don't stay alive until Jesus keeps his promise to return. And that's specifically what this section is about, why this section is prompted. Paul even starts out saying, listen, I want to give you the answer to this. I want to give you the education. I want to give you the comfort and hope that you need because your loved ones are now passing away and Jesus has not yet returned. So here's where Paul begins in his answer. He begins in the only place that you can with this. He says, first and foremost, remember one of the basic things that I taught you, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he took on human flesh, came to this earth, and sacrificed himself to make payment for all of your sins. That's a basic Christian fundamental fact. And then three days later, he proved that God accepted this sacrifice, and that in God the Father's eyes, we are all absolutely perfect, that we are sanctified, something that Paul hits on very hard in last week's lesson about what we should be doing until he does return, You are sanctified before holy God. There's nothing that now stands between you and God. And so what Paul does is to reinforce one of those fundamental things that makes our Christian faith basically the thing that carries us through this life is death has no real power over those who trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. So if you close your eyes tonight and you don't wake up tomorrow, that's not a bad thing. In fact, in reality, it's a good thing because you begin to enjoy the glories of eternal life. And that day, whether it's our own judgment day of death or the final day on this earth, is in God's hands, not man's and not our own. God knows how long you will spend on this earth and when the glories of heaven begin for you and for me. That's what Paul tells the Thessalonians who are freaking out about their dear friends who they have to bury in the ground. What about them? They didn't make it. What's going to happen to them? And Paul says, do not worry. God will take care of them. In fact, they're already enjoying the glories of heaven, or as King David tells us, they're dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. Now, Paul wants to give some details 
to not just the day of a person's end, but the last day when this earth will no longer be what it is for us, not just our home, but it will serve a different or a sanctified purpose. So Paul starts to layer, and you have to understand, once Judgment Day begins, all of our normalcies of life cease to exist. The concept of time changes to the concept of eternity. The laws of physics cease to be. Even the law of gravity will no longer rule our lives, as Paul tells us in one of the verses yet to come. And so while we think in, in, in periods of time, Paul instead wants to lay these things out in more a set of sequences. Some are happening simultaneously, some precede others. And so he says, first and foremost, you should understand that the last day will be the visible return of Jesus Christ. You will see him. In fact, there's a, a passage in Revelation that says every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All of a sudden, the laws of physics are out the window because depending where you are on planet Earth, everybody will see him, even if you're on the other side. But it will be a very visible, a very public event. And Paul says there's something else you should understand. When Jesus visibly returns from the eternities of heaven to come and judge this world, he's going to bring with them all the souls of the Christians who had died preceding Judgment Day. And he's already giving that implication of education that when a Christian dies, the very moment that they pass from this life, their soul and body separate, and their soul immediately goes to heaven. There's no in-between place. There's no waiting room. There's no hoop jumping. God says, welcome home, because Christ has made payment with his precious blood. Now, to offer them even more hope, Paul goes on and fills in some of the other blanks. And before he proceeds any further, he wants to remind them, I'm not telling you what I think. I'm telling you what God says. And sometimes little chunks of information like that in God's word we can quickly read over to get to the good stuff. But stop for a moment and consider how important this line is, this phrase. Do you have any clue how many philosophies and ideas there are about the end of the world? We'll touch on some of that next week when we get to the when. Uh, and Lord knows there have been so many predictions about when the world's going to end. There's probably just as many as, uh, about how uh, the world's going to end. Paul wants to assure them, I'm not making this up. It's, it isn't anything to do with some of the pagan philosophies that you've had in your past life or some of the things you've heard. This is what God says. Because I don't just want to offer you words of comfort. God wants you to be secure in your faith and understand that this is all well planned out. And there's some security knowing that this is all under God's control. And so Paul says, okay, so when the Lord visibly returns with the souls of those who have preceded them into heaven, the people who are still alive are not at an advantage over those who have already died. Remember, that was their original question. And he uses this unique term that actually has two flavors to it. One has to do with time. One has to do with a precedent. So in a sense, he's saying, if you are alive when Jesus returns, you're not at an advantage of getting to go to heaven first. In fact, if you think it through, those souls of the departed had already spent however much time in heaven. Now, that's going to transition because on Judgment Day, Paul also will give the information that there's this resurrection of the body. Paul also wants them to understand there's no advantage to having remained alive as though this was a foot race and the first one to cross the line gets the prize. So if you're alive come Judgment Day, Paul is saying basically this. You don't get to go to heaven sooner. You don't get a higher spot in heaven. You see, there's, there's no upside to having remained alive. In fact, for many people, it might even be that much more challenging. 
because they've had to continue to endure not only the sinful consequences of this life, but the Lord certainly promises as we get closer to the end, that's going to become more and more difficult. He says, I wonder if I'll find anybody with faith. And, and so there is no advantage, he's telling the Thessalonians. It's, it's good that they've actually passed from this life. They're already enjoying God's glory, everything that Christ has done for you. So don't think that you'll be in a better place. Now Paul wants them to understand, actually you will all be on the same plane or common ground. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. And you notice I took the comma out. That's part of the translating is they'll put in the punctuation. It should not be there. The Lord is not only going to visibly return, he's going to audibly return. And this word that Paul uses for the Lord's command is like that of a general calling out in the midst of a battle or of a captain of a ship telling the rowers, it's, it's time to row. It's this command, and John reminds us what that command's about. That command is what begins the process of the dead bodies of believers coming out of their graves. Maybe the best way to think of it, the best way to get your head around it, is Jesus standing outside the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus, come out! And there's nothing that could hold back the body of Lazarus. Now Paul doesn't go into it here, but there's other parts of scriptures that tells us simultaneously the souls of those that the Lord has brought back and the bodies that have just now been raised are reunited at that point. See, that's, if you want to call it a disadvantage of dying before judgment day is uh, our dearly departed have been experiencing the glories of heaven spiritually but not physically. And I can't even begin to describe what that difference is because God doesn't really clarify that for us. The only quote-unquote advantage of Judgment Day onward for heaven is that you'll enjoy it in your body, whereas right now our dearly departed are enjoying it with their souls. And I can't think that's a bad thing. Paul doesn't go into that because obviously the Thessalonians just aren't at that place where they can uh, take in all of that information. Now, the next thing he says is that the archangel, which we know from scriptures, Michael, will blow his trumpet sound, or at least that's the way it's translated. Uh, and see, I think that's where the confusion with the punctuation comes in. I, I wish the word had been translated differently and with its more primary meaning. It's not the voice of the archangel, it's the tone or the sound of the archangel, which works much better with the phrase that follows, the trumpet. And if you think in terms of what Paul used for the call of the Lord, that's very much like the battle. The commander will call out the battle cry, and then typically the trumpeter would follow that by blowing his trumpet so that everybody could hear that sound. Everybody would know, oh, it's time to charge. Basically, that's Paul's way of assuring the Thessalonians, there is not a single Christian who will not be raised back to life. It's a command that will touch all of them. And so whether you've got a cousin that died 10 years ago or a brother that died yesterday, whether their bodies are buried right next to your home or somebody was lost at sea, it doesn't matter. That body will be compelled to follow the command of our returning Lord and will be raised back to life and reunited with its soul. Now, so far, this is pretty easy to understand. Even this last part, the dead in Christ will rise first, meaning there's a sequence of events to the resurrection. Believers' bodies are raised first. It's later on that the unbelievers' bodies are raised back to life. God doesn't say exactly how different in timing that is, especially since time is no longer an issue. We do know certainly that there's an advantage to being raised as a believer, eternal life, as opposed to being raised as an unbeliever, eternal death. 
But remember where this started was the Thessalonian question. What about our loved ones? Which also means then, what about me? And here's where we get, if you will, to the controversial text, or the verse of this entire text. Paul basically says at that point, and it's this kind of simultaneous event where the resurrected bodies and souls are being reunited, and all of a sudden the believers on earth are being lifted up to meet them in the clouds. Now, I've put up here what the word really means, to snatch, seize, or carry. And I, I, again, it's one of those preference things. I wish they had actually used the alternate meaning for the word because this common Greek verb has been misinterpreted and misused, uh, snatched up, taken away. It's not really what the word means. It's taking something, but the real meaning is to take it as your own. So you understand on Judgment Day, when Christ calls out to the dead bodies or lifts up those who still remain, what he's doing is he's claiming every Christian who has ever lived on the face of this earth as his very own. He's done it with his blood shed at the cross, and he does it with his voice on the last day of this earth. Nobody will be missed. Nobody will be left behind. Nobody will be lost because they had faith in Christ. That's ultimately what defines your eternity. Now, why am I going on and on about this? Is because this verb is misunderstood into what is maybe one of the most controversial teachings about the last day. You've probably heard about the rapture. That's not actually even how that verb is to be translated. No doubt if you've ever seen the movies or read the books, the Left Behind series, you have some passing understanding of what this is about. You know, I, of course, the question before us, the nagging question is, is this is really what Paul's talking about with the Thessalonians? Is there an alternative interpretation of what Paul is teaching them that maybe most of Christianity has missed? Is the rapture a real thing? Will some people be taken away suddenly and a bunch of people left and then there's like another thousand years that goes on and then there's another... Watch this. Are certain people going to be snatched away from the earth as Jesus invisibly returns to take away his church? Will everyone else be left behind and have to deal with many years of trials and tribulations? The vast majority of scholars simply do not believe this. For the most part, the rapture theory wasn't even invented until an Anglican priest named John Darby developed this belief in 1827. The early church and the historical consensus among Christians throughout the prior 18 centuries was Jesus would come back one time, not twice, and his return would be visible, not invisible, as with the rapture. The one and only second coming is when Jesus will return to judge the world. But not just judge the world, to set things right again, to make all things new, restoring and redeeming all things. But despite the historical consensus about Jesus' one and only return, the rapture theory is alive and well, especially among fundamentalist Christians in the United States. See, after Darby developed this theory about the end times, the very popular Schofield Reference Bible included his theology. And so did Dallas Theological Seminary, the Calvary Chapel Movement, and popular authors like Tim LaHaye, who wrote the best-selling Left Behind books. But when we really dig deep, we just don't see this in Scripture. So let's look at the two main scripture passages used to support the rapture theory. In Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica, he writes about the dead in Christ rising first, and then those of us who are still alive being caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, in the clouds. This is the main passage used to support the rapture belief. 
But this passage is not describing a separate rapture event distinct from the second coming of Christ described elsewhere in Scripture. We know this because the New Testament in various Scripture passages uses the same Greek words to describe the one-time visible return of Christ. The other main passage used to support the rapture concept is in Matthew chapter 24, where one will be taken and the other left. To put it simply, this verse is actually talking about the opposite of what you might think, according to the context. In the prior verse, Jesus parallels this analogy with the days of Noah and the flood. The ones taken away were the ones who were destroyed by the flood. The ones left behind were Noah and his family, who God actually rescued from the destruction. At any rate, Jesus' main point here was not to teach about a rapture, but to tell people his second coming will be a surprise, just like the flood was in the days of Noah. So these preceding explanations not only coincide perfectly with the previously shown New Testament passages, but also with the Old Testament prophetic messianic passages in Daniel 7 and Isaiah chapters 9 and 11. I'm guessing you've at least heard of this rapture concept, and, and the truth is there are a lot of Christians today that, that actually believe it. Hopefully you understand, it, it's not an ancient teaching, it's a, a modern creation. It's also a reminder why we do the work we do with Scripture. And sometimes I know I can go overboard with the grammar and, and the etymology of words, but if we don't know what God says, basically what the devil tempts us to do is make up our own beliefs. And so if you wonder what does the church teach about this or the church teach about that, I could really care less. It's what does God say about this or about that. And I want to make this very clear, and you understand this carefully. You may have a friend or a cousin or somebody who actually is Christian and believes in the rapture, this way that the world ends. Um, and there's a variety of different uh, types of belief in the rapture. I'm, I'm not trying to say that people who believe in it are going to go to hell. If they are Christian, if they believe Christ paid for their sins, you will see them in heaven. And thank God you will. But it begs the question, why even take the time to talk about alternative teachings and, and why spend so much extra time on something we already know, like the end of the world? It's what Paul concludes with. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. You see what happens if we're not on the same page about things in this life. It can be confusing or frustrating. If we're not on the same thing about on the same page about things that God teaches us in, in his word, it's more than confusing. It's more than frustrating. How do you encourage somebody who thinks God's going to come back one time invisibly and leave a bunch of people behind and then make them suffer for a thousand years until he comes back another time? What encouragement do you find in that? And it's not just po pointing a finger at another religion or another teaching. I want you to really wrestle with the fact of why Paul wrote these words because I can't think of a time or a place where they're more appropriate. Especially as we go through our present situation, not just the virus and all the politics, but if you're really honest with yourself, after a while this life does wear you down. Maybe it's not all of the big things, maybe it's the little things, a million little things that after a while get to you. There is nothing that the devil wants more than for us to be on the wrong side of the truth on Judgment Day. So please listen carefully as I try to help you understand how smart the Holy Spirit was to have Paul write these words, not just to the Thessalonians, but to you and to me. For instance, if we're not running the same race, if we're not pulling in the same direction, we're going to run into problems. 
You know how that happens in life. If you're not doing things according to the same page theory, you can, you can really hurt somebody. But if you're doing that spiritually, it could lead to somebody's condemnation, eternal damnation. As hard as it is for us to get our heads around the concept of eternity with God in heaven, it's even more difficult to consider somebody spending eternity separate from God in hell. But those are the only two realities. And I know we're not like the early church in the first century, like the Thessalonians. I don't have anybody busting down my door wanting to arrest me because I believe Jesus is my Savior. But we shouldn't underestimate the devil and the things that he will try to use against us to persecute our minds and our hearts, even though he may not find the means to persecute our bodies. You see, at present time, especially as we all eagerly anticipate the day of the Lord's return, and I'm sure many of us are praying for that in earnest, there's a reality that if we're not headed in the same direction, if we're not on the same page, we're only doing harm to ourselves. And so that's why it's important for us to study God's Word together. But more importantly, and one of the things that I find most challenging during the present situation isn't just the physical side of things or the emotional side of things, and let's be honest, it's taken its toll. But it's taken its toll in a much greater way in a spiritual sense. There's a reason why the Lord created the Christian church, the invisible Christian church. And one of the things that we're feeling right now, one of the things I believe is being threatened is our Christian fellowship. I don't know about you, but I've gotten to that point where the, I miss, I, it's more than just missing seeing people. We're missing on what God has designed as part of the church, the encouragement and hope that we can offer to each other. We can send in our prayer requests and we can pray for each other, and we should. But there's nothing like looking somebody in the eye and seeing if their words match what's in their hearts. Because a lot of us will put on a brave face and say, I'm okay, it's all good, we'll just keep plowing along, and God's in control, and he is. But when you look in their eyes and you see this sadness, or maybe this emptiness, you know the Lord is calling you at that moment to be there to support them, to help them. And you recognize that one of the beautiful blessings of fellowship is to actually put your arm around somebody when they're lost or lonely. And the Lord would have us, even now, under these difficult circumstances, try and do that as best we can, within the parameters of what maybe our government or our own life situation will allow. So to offer you encouragement and hope in the same way I hope Paul was able to offer it to the Thessalonians, there's a couple things that we might want to put into practice, even now, and especially as we head into the winter months. You see, the Lord tells us that if we are divided, not just in our thinking, not just in our practices, but ultimately in our faith, we're a kingdom that cannot stand. It's a true-to-life principle, and so it's even more true when it comes to our spiritual lives and our lives as Christians. God created a family, and so he calls on us to be that family. So I'm going to encourage you, best you can, to continue to pray for one another. These prayer lists are important. Because it's not just COVID, there's all the other things that continue to go on in people's lives. So when you hear about somebody struggling, go ahead, say your own personal prayer. If possible, send it into church and we'll get hundreds of other people to pray for one another. But there's more we can do. Because we don't get to see each other here every Sunday morning and say hi, or give each other a hug, 
I would like you to maybe make the extra effort of reaching out to your fellow Christians, your members of Abiding Shepherd, members of your family, but others you might know. And whatever form of communication you find is best for you, and I know the younger generation does that much differently than we as part of the older generation, let people know you are praying for them. Let them know that you're thinking about them. And if you're feeling lonely or lost, if you need some encouragement, don't wait for somebody to come to your door or ring your phone or send you a letter. Reach out and ask. If there is one thing I think the devil has most effectively worked amongst us, especially Americans, is we don't ask for the help that we need. How's it going? I'm good. We're lying through our teeth. If you need help, ask. Now, there's only so much that we can do virtually, and we're trying to do that, but there's so much more that we can do spiritually. If somebody needs help, be there for them. And if you need help, ask for it. The last thing I want to hear is somebody saying, well, you didn't do this or you didn't do that. We're all only human, and we can't do what only God can do. But we can do something to help in the same way that Paul did something to help with the Thessalonians. Truth of the matter is, is I can't wait for Judgment Day to get here. Don't misunderstand. I love the life that God has given me. I pray you do too. I hope it's been a tremendous blessing to you, the highs and the lows of it both. But I can't wait to see the face of my God and finally put this image in my mind with reality. I've got some dear loved ones who have not remained alive until the coming of the Lord. I can't wait for that reunion. And most of all, one of the most exciting things about the things that Paul shares with the Thessalonians is the reminder that one day you and I will get to do this. Not on Sunday mornings in a church building in Wisconsin, but together in heaven in our white gowns before the throne of the Lord, you and I will get to celebrate and cheer the fact that Jesus Christ is our Savior. And because of that, we not only have this life, we also have eternal life. We never give up. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. And as God's grace reaches more and more people, God will receive more and more glory. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and will not last long. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Never give up.